What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Thanks for joining us today. Can't wait to bring you this episode today. Really, this is one of those inspiring, educating, just kind of lift you up and take you somewhere else interviews. We are talking with the founder and CEO of one of the most successful nonprofit organizations in the world today. That organization is called Charity Water, and our guest today is Scott Harrison. If you haven't heard of Charity Water, really, they have almost revolutionized the nonprofit space. They came up with this idea that every dollar donated goes directly to their mission. If you give a dollar... $1 goes directly to helping individuals throughout the world get access to clean water. And they, it's a really brilliant plan that they've gotten other organizations and donors to basically cover the cost of the operations. And we talk about it in this interview, but it's a way of letting people know we are not wasting your precious donations. We are not boosting up salaries and buying all this fancy gear. Instead, we're making it part of our mission to directly pass it along. And essentially what Charity Water does is through a number of projects, primarily I believe it's uh, digging wells, they are bringing clean water to the millions, hundreds of millions of people who are unable to have access to that around the world. And Scott is a great guy. He's got a truly unique story, which we cover in the beginning I actually was lucky enough to hear Scott speak years ago and thought at the time, man, I'd like to go work for Charity Water. But, um, you know, I'm going to I'm going to just let Scott do the talking here. Uh, it's it's a great story. It's a great organization. You're going to hopefully learn a lot. 
Before we get into it, as always, guys, we, we love to hear from you at Smart People Pod on Twitter. If you want to leave us a review on iTunes, that always helps. And remember, if you want to join the crew, learn a little bit more, and really become part of this community of learners, go to mastermind.smartpeoplepodcast.com. As part of the Mastermind, not only do you get to connect with us and our group, you get access to never-before-heard audio and many things to come. Perhaps the most interesting is you get access to private webinars. We actually have our next one coming up April 18th at 3 p.m. Eastern. So if you are already in the Mastermind, you should know that by now, but if not... Uh, April 18th at 3 p.m. Eastern, we are talking to previous guest Tim Sanders. So if you're interested, mastermind.smartpeoplepodcast.com, you can sign up there and get access to this webinar, among many more coming in the future. All right, going to make this quick and brief so that you can get into the interview with Scott Harrison of Charity Water. Hope you enjoy and let us know what you think. All right, Scott, I got to say, I am super excited for this interview. I, I can't wait to talk to you. So thank you, first and foremost, for taking time out of what I know is a crazy day and, and schedule that you have to, to join us today. Chris, thanks for having me. So first, I really just want to start off. Usually I do this in the intro, but nobody can tell it better than you can. Give us the grand view of Charity Water. What is it? What do you do? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Grand. Well, we're uh, gosh, we're we're a nonprofit focused on making sure every single person on earth has clean water to drink, and we've been at that for almost ten years, uh, helping to provide clean drinking water for people in need around the world. Uh, now in twenty four different countries. That is it. That's the view, and you guys do a great job. We're gonna get into it real quick. I didn't have this question planned, but. What do you think about, like, why can't we just give people those, you know, there's little straws or there's little filter systems or things like that. And why haven't we made that just, we made 7 billion straws and everybody gets clean drinking water. Uh, one of the problems with the, you know, if we dive into the issue later, uh, one of the problems is the time spent actually going to get water. Mm -hmm. So in so many of these villages, you know, about 663 million people today don't have clean water. And that is just so hard for us to fathom because it's something we take for granted. It's something we buy in bottles and we don't even need to. <laughs> but 663 million people are not drinking clean water today. So there, you kind of have two big problems there. You have the distance to the water and the time that is wasted uh, walking those hours, sometimes up to eight hours a day. And I know that may feel like an exaggeration, but I can tell you story and story that that is not. Um, so that's, you know, imagine uh, in a four-hour trip out, four hours back, um, and then that water is dirty. It's contaminated because it came from a swamp or a pond or a river. Oh so God. the filter would work um, to clean up that dirty water at the home. But it doesn't solve for the, you know, just in Africa, 40 billion hours wasted uh, collecting water every single year. And the, and the huge impact that has on the local economy, just this, this huge time suck. The other problem with the filters, they only last about a year. Mm. So imagine, you know, making 663 filters where well, you haven't solved any of the walking. Um, and then you would need to, a year later, collect 663 million filters and then hand out another 663 million filters. So the, you know, the distribution costs 
uh, in so many of these rural areas would be just really prohibitive. Wow. Um, and the, you know, so for 10 years, you might need 10 different filters. So really it's 6.6 billion filters um, over those 10 years in that example. Now there, there, you know, charity water for its entire existence has been solution agnostic. So there is no one size fits all solution to the water crisis. A lot of different things work in a lot of different contexts. Um, we actually do have a program in Cambodia where water is everywhere. The surface water is everywhere um, where we are using these household filters. That's called a biosand filter. Mm. Um, but sometimes you can dig wells, drill wells, uh, build rainwater harvesting systems, gravity systems. Um, a lot of different things work. Uh, in a lot of different contexts, but we could probably dive into that later. <laughs> yeah, we will. But I'm glad you you discussed that because you know I, I actually thought I knew a, a little, a decent amount about Charity Water. But you guys are the well guys. I mean, that's what I thought. You, you dig wells, you make wells, and so I didn't realize you also had. I like the idea of basically the solution agnostic. Yeah, I would say wells would be uh, about half of the. Wow. The you know the different projects that we employ across across the the world. Fantastic. Well, again, man, it's tough because I really want to go there, but I think it's important for people to get the story. One of the things we highlight on this podcast, and people know about me, is you know I am so passionate about first finding why are you here, finding that thing that gets you out of bed, and then really understanding that it's usually for a greater purpose than you're currently. Serving oftentimes people fall into traps that whether it be money or society or peer pressure and your story is a perfect example of that. So um, bring us back. You know, you were a you were a club promoter early on in in your adulthood. Was this after college or how'd that work? Yeah, well, I feel like I'm the poster child for what you just said. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Um, You know, I'll start a little earlier. I um, I was born in, in Philadelphia, middle class family. Um, dad was a businessman. Mom was a, a writer. And when I was four years old, there was this terrible tragedy that happened to our family. We we moved into a house actually in New Jersey, and there was a carbon monoxide gas leak in the house. The gas company had installed a furnace that leaked carbon monoxide, and this uh, completely debilitated my mom. My dad and I got a little sick, but we were only spending the evenings in the house. And my mom was fixing up the basement uh, with this prolonged exposure. So she collapses unconscious one day, oh. rushed her to the hospital, find these massive amounts of carboxyhemoglobin or uh, carbon monoxide. And instead of dying, thankfully, her immune system dies instead. And she is now uh, basically an invalid and completely unable to function, completely allergic to everything in the world from soap to car fumes to the print uh, in magazines. So it's a bizarre childhood. You know, this happens at four. Mom basically uh, begins living in a bathroom covered in tile um, and that has been washed in ivory soap 20 times and then covered in aluminum foil, sleeping on an army cot that's been washed 20 times in baking soda. Wow. So just you know, connected to oxygen, just really weird stuff. And my parents, uh, were they were Christians. They had a... Um, a really authentic uh, Christian faith that led them not to sue the gas company for gross negligence. They didn't want to become bitter. They believed it was truly an accident. And, you know, I grew up uh, in, a, in a pretty healthy home outside of, um, you know, the, 
the bizarre uh, health issues my mom had in a, in a caregiver role, helping to take care of her, doing the cooking, doing the cleaning. A, a really good kid. Family planning stopped, so I was an only child. And, you know, I had this deep respect for my parents and, and watching them treat each other well, watching uh, how important their faith was to get them through this. So everything, you know, was going great until the age of 18, where, you know, I begin to live out the classical rebellion, the classical prodigal son story. And I moved to New York City, I join a band, I grow my hair down to my shoulders and say, hey, look, now it's my turn. I've been playing by the rules. Uh, I've been doing what everybody else wanted me to do. Now it's my turn to have some fun. And, you know, one by one, I began to do all of the things that I wasn't allowed to do. So it started with smoking, uh, two packs a day. It started then with drinking, uh, then sleeping around, then gambling, then pornography, then strip clubs. Uh, The band broke up immediately, but I learned that the the real money was on the other side of that business, which was in actually promoting the nightclubs. So at 19, I become a club promoter. And the next 10 years really flashed by. And it was as dark and as decadent, as well as as glamorous as you can imagine. Uh, Dating girls on billboards, uh, selling $1,000 bottles of champagne to, to people who would buy 10 of them. Um, and spray them around the club, and flying around to Milan and to Paris and, and to London for Fashion Week, basically following the the party around the world. And you know, a decade later, uh, I was unrecognizable from you know the teenager helping to take care of my mom. Mm-hmm. You know, I was this selfish, sycophantic, drug-addled uh, party boy. Mm-hmm. That, you know, the legacy I was leaving was simply just, I mean, my actual job was to get people wasted. Right. The more people got gloriously wasted, the more money I made. Yeah. The more successful we were. So first I want to ask you this question because I, by the way, for for your knowledge and the listener's knowledge, I actually saw you speak years ago. I was working at Living Social and you came in and um, at that exact time, and the listeners know my story, but I was in a bit of a transition um, not so much from that, well, that lifestyle a little bit, but, uh, more so from, I want to make a lot of money. And then living social was my first step towards startups and like really having some autonomy and everything. So when I saw your story, it really connected. And then as many know, I went on to actually start a nonprofit, which is not the only solution, but, but, um, what I want to know is first, and I thought this when you were speaking, was that time fun? Like, do you say to everyone, look, none of that stuff, sh- you should ever do it. It's not fun. Or is it like, yeah, you know, I really am interested on your take on that yeah. time in your life. I think it was so sure it was fun. I mean, you know, decadence and debauchery is fun on some level, but it was absolutely soul sucking at the same time. And I felt like I was betraying the the faith, the spirituality, the morality that I had you know, authentically embodied as a kid. So while, you know, yeah, it might be fun to party all night, you have these moments at noon. I remember this one moment vividly where, you know, the partying is over and you look out the window and people are on their lunch break. (laughs) And you haven't been to bed. 
And, you know, there's that sickening feeling that, you know, if I sleep eight hours, I'm going to wake up at 8 p.m. while other people are, are having dinner. And, you know, how unhealthy this is. And, you know, and then you've sometimes got to take pills just to go to sleep. So mm-hmm. I think it looks glamorous on the outside. But, you know, I joke all the time that, you know, had I continued down the path, I if I made it to 50, I would have looked 100 years old. I mean, right. it really takes its toll right. uh, on people's faces, on on their bodies. It's a really unhealthy way to live. Now, again, we were at the extreme end of this. But uh, there are a few people in nightlife that don't drink at all and, and don't party. Um, they were definitely the aberrations. I mean, that was not the norm. Mm. Um, and, and one of the things is you, you know, when you're in that business, it also gets really boring. You know, listening to the same DJ play the same songs every night, hanging mm. out with the same people that you're not having meaningful conversations because you have to shout just to be heard into their ear. And you wind up partying just because – trying to escape the banality of it all. Mm-hmm. So I, I have a really, um, I, I, I don't have a glamorous look back on it. Um, I think I learned a lot of things that have been applicable to starting Charity Water. You know, once a promoter, I guess, always a promoter. Mm. So the same skill that could, you know, spin up a story where if you waited in line and you got past the velvet rope and then you spent $20 on a cocktail, Chris, your life has meaning. You've <laughs> yeah. arrived. Right. Um, being able to tell a very different story, if you're generous, if you're compassionate, if you care about people you know, that are suffering, your brothers and sisters you know, oceans away, um, if you engage with these issues, then your life has meaning. I mean, it's a, it's a very, very, very different 180-degree you know, story, but it is, it is still storytelling. It's still promoting nonetheless. You know, one of the things I've found is that it takes a large, impactful event or experience to radically change somebody's worldviews and their path. And so in this case, to go from what you were doing to what you are doing now, was there a, a massive, either bad, good or bad experience, or was it gradual? It was a little of both. So I, I, I have characterized this as almost hitting bottom at the top. Uh, it was on this vacation to Punta del Este in Uruguay at 28 years old. And we'd rented this beautiful house and there were servants and horses. And I remember spending $1,000 on fireworks on New Year's Eve and magnums of Dom Perignon flowing. And everything should have been right. Everything should have felt great. And there was this party that lasted too long. And I remember wanting to sleep and there were still people in our compound partying around the pool. And this is like a day later. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's almost like that, that game of musical chairs where, you know, the music just kind of goes on forever. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't stop and you're, you know, there's no, there's no opportunity to sit down. You're just literally walking around in a circle. And, you know, a lot, a lot of things happen or began to happen on that trip. I... I realized, I just took a moment to look back at a decade and said, if I continue to play forward, my legacy is just, I get people wasted. Um, and, you know, maybe I'll get a million people wasted or 5 million people wasted or 10 million people wasted. But there is no end to this. And I will never find what I'm looking for in a party. You know, there would never be enough girls. There'd never be enough status. There'd never be enough watches. There'd never be, someone would always have a better car. Um, there would be no end to it. 
if I continued down this path. There mm-hmm. would always be someone richer. Someone would always have more. And yeah, I, I began to kind of go the other way. I began to read this this book of deep theology called The Pursuit of God by this guy named A.W. Tozer. And my father, you know, my, so my dad and mom had been praying for me, little old ladies locked up in prayer closets, you know, wearing patterns into the carpet with their knees, you know, for a decade. Wow. So my parents had sent me this book on the vacation and said, hey, you know, um, if you have any time, read it. And for some reason, I took it along. And I felt like I was reading the exact opposite picture of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, this guy in the book was writing about a search for humility, a search for character, a search for um, morality and purity and generosity. And you know, it's almost like reading you know, whatever lack of virtue you have, seeing the virtue. Or um, I think Augustine you know, explored this a little bit in Confessions. And... I just I was really interested to try to find my way back to to faith to morality and realizing that I had betrayed where I had come from. Mm. So then I go back to New York and you know I start trying to go back to church again and I you know at the time they were all meeting in very badly fluorescent lit basements of schools. So I'm like, "Ah, oh, no, this is <laughs> this is no good." You know, this is what I remember not liking about it growing up. Right. And, you know, starting to, to read um, theology, read the Bible again. But it, it, there's this push-pull because my actual job is still getting people drunk. I mean, that's right. how I'm paying the rent. So it took me until the summer of that year to make the break. And, you know, I'd been wrestling with this for a while. Um, there was a moment where I just, um, I just checked out of New York. I rented, a, uh, I rented a car. I grabbed a Bible. I grabbed a bottle of Dewar's. I just started driving north. had no idea where I was going. And I was kind of, you know, talking with God, thinking about what would be next, what might I do. And I wound up in Moosehead Lake, uh, a town called Greenville. There was a dial-up internet cafe there. And I got this idea to tithe or, or to give one of the 10 years that I had selfishly wasted serving myself um, in service of the poor. And that to me felt like the exact opposite of my life. Mm. Uh, a life spent in, in total service to myself. Um, I'd done that. What would it look like to actually kind of give my life for others? And, and what about a year? A year seems safe to try. So I start applying to all these famous humanitarian organizations from this internet cafe. And I never go back. I sell my possessions and wait for these applications, you know, all these acceptance letters to come in. And Chris, maybe, you know, your, your listeners are smarter than I was at the time, but <laughs> of course, no one will freaking take me. You know, no one will even take me as a volunteer because my resume scares the crap out of everybody. <laughs> you know, <laughs> here's the guy that, that gets people drunk every night, wants to go, you know, work for a serious organization with serious people. Right. Um, so I'm denied by all these organizations. And finally, the, the last one really that hadn't denied me. Uh, a group called Mercy Ship said, if I was willing to pay them $500 a month, and if I was willing to go to post-war Liberia, I could serve as a, as a photojournalist on their mission. And this was great because I had actually gotten a degree in journalism mm-hmm. and communications at NYU, um, you know, just going, even though I was still doing the, the nightclubs, um, because my parents had saved and I was an only child and journalism was easy. Right. <laughs> so... I, uh, I, I wind up, you know, so, so imagine, you know, the party in New Year's Eve, kind of the spring, summer wrestling with this. And then in the fall, in September of October uh, 2004 at 28, I jump on this 
giant hospital ship full of humanitarian doctors and surgeons. And life changes in the most dramatic, emphatic way as we sail into the coast of West Africa. Wow. Well, and one of the things I want to point out here is, you know, your experience was pretty, you know, as you kind of alluded to one end of the spectrum, you know, and there could be people going, well, I, I understand what he's saying, but I'm not a club promoter. I'm not out all night. I'm not boozing. I'm not doing this, but I still feel disconnected for, for one reason or the other. And I don't think I'm doing what I'm here for. And I was asking, I wanted to ask you for those, you know, what, what would you tell them? How do you explain your realization to others? You know, I mean, uh, mine was very much about faith and morality, which, Mm. you know, resonates with some people and doesn't with others. So I I had been seeking to serve myself for so many years and, and didn't find any freedom or joy there. And it was really, you know, when when I kind of began, there's something to think about, and and maybe some of your listeners have, have, um, this would resonate with. There's something about kind of growing up in a family of faith and, you know, you got to go to church and you kind of have to do the stuff. And then there's a very different uh, idea of embracing it as an adult. And, you know, at 28 years old, as I began to, rediscover some of the teaching, you know, I, I kind of discovered that, you know, Jesus was this, like, he was kind of amazing. He was very different than I thought. I mean, he was giving the finger to the religious establishment of the day. Hmm. He was all against the religiosity and the oppression, and he poured his life out for the poor. I mean, he spent his entire time really looking after the most helpless, the most vulnerable, pouring out his life in, in search of others. And, you know, I'd come across this verse in the Bible that says, true religion is to look after widows and orphans in their distress and to keep yourself from being polluted by the world. Well, I was 0 for 2, and I was <laughs> a polluter, and I had done nothing, Chris, to serve, you know, anyone that looked like a widow and orphan. Mm-hmm. I think in my 10 years of nightlife, I threw one party for a charity, uh, advertised that I was giving a percentage of the proceeds, and I gave 1%. Wow. And that was my view of charity. Wow. So, you know, for me, it was, it was an experiment. And I think what really helped was instead of dropping in on a, you know, one or two week trip to, you know, proverbially pet the poor mm-hmm. and take some pictures, you know, it was immersive. Mm-hmm. You know, I spent almost a year living, um, you know, in, in these incredibly extreme situations. I mean, Liberia, to give you an example, had just come out of a 14-year civil war. There was no electricity. There was no running water. There was no sewage in the country. You couldn't send a letter. There was no mail system. And there was one doctor for every 50,000 people that lived there. So it was in such extremity. I, I just remember weeping all the time. I mean, I would see the suffering, see the sickness, see kids drinking from swamps. Ugh. I was selling $10 bottles of Voss right. water in clubs to people who wouldn't even drink it. Jesus. They would just buy it and load up the tray. And, uh, you know, living with that day in, day out, not just parachuting in, it, it changed me in such a profound way. And, you know, I should mention that I had this, I had this, cathartic moment where I quit everything in one night before I actually walked up the gangway of the ship. I got hammered. I drank like 10 beers. I think I smoked three <laughs> packs of Marble Reds. And I just knew that I would have to leave that all um, essentially on land and kind of sail hopefully into this new story of my life. So I never smoked again. I never touched Coke again. I never um, 
Uh, I never gambled again. I never looked at porn again. I never set foot in a strip club. I really um, changed my whole life. I, I love wine and beer. So I was I just about to say that, a, that's my only vice. A left. question I had was, well, do you still drink? And you answered it. Yeah, I love wine and beer. I mean, but you know, now I'm 40 and I have a one and a half year old at home and yeah. another one on the way. So you know, oh, congratulations! Two glasses of wine and you wake up at seven in the morning saying it should have been two. <laughs> yes, believe me, I have. A, he's almost one, and like when you said that, I just realized all of a sudden your life goes from like, yeah, I can drink and maybe have a little hangover, like slightly, you know, and to oh my god, I can't even afford to to feel bad tomorrow. <laughs> I would say in the last 18 months, there was one night where my wife and I absolutely overdid it. Yeah. And we paid for it. Yeah. Uh, our son was up at 530 and I think we got home at three. Yep. And so there's no excuses. You can't, no. you, you know, you can't just say, ah, well, you know, we'll go back to bed. You can't do it. And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. Today's sponsor is Casper Mattresses, obsessively engineered American made mattresses at a shockingly fair price. And now you can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash smart and using our offer code SMART. Listen, you spend about a third of your life sleeping. Let's make sure you're doing it on a good mattress. Casper mattresses feature just the right sink, just the right bounce, and feature two technologies, a hybrid of latex foam and memory foam. They've got a risk-free trial and return policy. They'll deliver it straight to you, and you can try it for 100 days, and if you're not happy, they'll pick it back up. If you head to the mattress store, you might get a minute or two to try out their mattresses. With Casper, you'll actually get to sleep on it. It's $500 for a twin-sized mattress and $950 for a king-sized mattress. Comparing that to industry averages, that's an amazing price point. Listen up, Casper also sells amazing sheets and pillows. I purchased a couple of the Casper pillows and it absolutely changed my life. It changed the way I sleep and I'm so thankful to Casper for that. As a Smart People Podcast listener, you can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash smart and using offer code SMART. Terms and conditions apply. And now back to the episode. Exactly. <laughs> oh, man. Well, the one last question on this, and then let's just learn all about Charity Water. But the money aspect, you know, what can you, what did you learn, first of all? But what can you tell others? Because even myself, right, That's that was a struggle. I think I'm getting past it. But you, you were making a lot of money. I remember you talking about that and the things you were buying and the cars and the watches and all that. Um giving that up for a life of service in America specifically giving up that wealth is really difficult. How did you deal with it? Did you, did that worry you? Uh, are you okay with it now? What are your thoughts? Um, we were making great money. We were also living, you know, it was a reckless lifestyle. So if we made a couple hundred a year, we would spend a little more, you know, so it was a, the lifestyle was luxurious because it was, it was really other people's money. You know, you'd fly on someone else's private plane. Uh, you were never the one picking up the tab for the cars or the dinners or, you know, or the nightclub. Um, but it was, it was a, it was a huge hit. I mean, Chris, I mean, to go from, 
you know, that to actually paying $500 a right. month. I mean, it's about as extreme as you can imagine. Um, it, it was a real kind of vow of, of poverty and, and starting charity water. I mean, dude, I was living on a closet floor. Um, so the, the problem with nightclub promoters is even though you make great money, you don't save. I mean, there's no culture of 401k and, <laughs> you know, the Roth IRA. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's a, it's a, you know, it comes in and it goes out because um, you almost have to spend to keep up the the appearance. Mm-hmm. So no, it was totally extreme. But you know, it was interesting on this ship. I, I went from you know a big loft in New York City with a grand piano and um, you know an amazing eight speaker system. Um, it was just it was an awesome apartment mm-hmm. to a two hundred square foot uh, cabin on the ship with two roommates in twin bunk beds and cockroaches uh, crawling out of our shower all the time. We would Ugh. kill anywhere between 10 and 20 cockroaches every month because the ship was 52 years old and was falling apart. So there was definitely a sense of feeling a little sorry for myself when I immediately joined the mission and the living conditions were, were so extreme. But then we would go out in the villages and see how people were living and boy, you you don't feel sorry for yourself anymore. I mean, you're so uh, blown away that you have food and shelter and and safety. You know, so many of these things we just take for granted. You know, the the basic needs that you know most people, even born into you know potentially a lower class um, here in this country. You know, I mean, there there are people that we serve that would walk miles to drink from our toilets because it would be the cleanest water they have ever had in their entire life. It is powerful. And I think about how difficult it is for those of us who haven't witnessed that to to almost to grasp it and to say, well, then we should be grateful for what we have. And I don't mean just say it right. Like I probably every day go, wow, like I'm, I'm really blessed. But there are plenty of other times when I'm like, but I need more. You know what I mean? And I think it's the fact that you were actually there. You've seen it. You've touched it now at this point, you know many times, but there's something about that experience. And I don't know if it's replicable. Uh, do you think it's something that we can learn without throwing ourselves into an environment like that? I mean, I, I hear about people make piv- making pivots all the time. Um, you hear about it a lot in finance. Someone's working a finance job. I mean, people, people interview at charity wall all the time. Uh, they'll walk into my office and I'll say, why do you want this job? And they'll say, I spent 10 years on wall street <laughs> and, I want my work to matter. Um, and this would be a radical position for them. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of these, we, we have people that will leave tech companies and take half their salary, you know, sit down with their wives and downsize their lives, um, often give up equity, leave stock options on the table. Mm-hmm. Charity Water, there's, there's no equity. There, there's no uh, <laughs> vesting stock. You really transfer your, your wealth to the poorest people in, in the world. So I've seen these career changes uh, whether it's someone leaving the ad business saying, you know, I don't really want to go work on a luxury car company campaign. I don't want to go work for an energy company. Mm-hmm. If I could help people get their most basic need, I'm willing to take a $50,000 a year pay cut to to have my work matter every single day. Oh, yeah. So I, I really do see it. It doesn't need to be as extreme as living in Liberia, West Africa. I guess I would say you know, it's an amazing way you know, for for those that are thinking of volunteering, and we actually, I should say, don't have 
opportunities because all of our work is done by locals. Mm-hmm. So we do not send Westerners over to dig wells uh, or build springs. It's, mm-hmm. it's all locally led. You know, we take some of our top donors to kind of catch the vision. But for, for those that are looking to volunteer with an organization, I'd say the longer the better. The more you can immerse. If you can make it six months, it'll change you in a way that two weeks won't. Right. Uh, you know, flying down, you know, with some church group to paint the orphanage the sixth time it's been painted that year. Uh, it's not a transformative experience. You know, living there for six months at that orphanage would absolutely change you. And you might tell someone, hey, the orphanage doesn't need a stupid coat of paint. <laughs> Here are our actual real needs. Sure. Well, thanks for that. And actually, let's pivot into Charity Water. But you, you kind of led me in with a question I had here. Word, you know, rumor has it, it's notoriously difficult to get hired at Charity Water. Um, You're very selective. And of course, it's because of the renowned work that you do and the probably over abundance of applications you have. So I wanted to know what your hiring process is like or, or what do you look for? What's the thing that really equates to a fantastic employee for what you do? So glad you asked that. And, and we didn't talk about this ahead of time. No. I, I love that question. Um, so, so my wife was the creative director here for nine years and just um, recently uh, stepped down um, just to spend more time with family. But uh, she, she articulated it best, I think. Lots of people would try to join the creative department. And she would get emails from people saying, love Charity Water, love the mission, been following your organization for years. I'll do anything. I will answer phones. I'll sweep floors. I mean, we've had people say, I'll clean the toilets. And she would discard those applications so fast. What Uh, she wanted to see was, I am pursuing an occupation as a graphic designer. And I want to be the best graphic designer. And I just came across your organization. And it seems to me that I might be able to use my craft and my skills in the benefit of others. Can we have a conversation? So she wanted passion for craft, passion for um, you pa- basically passion to be the best at whatever position over mission, over the kind of generalist that says, I- I'll do anything. And I think you know, that's the most helpful narrative is someone who is skilled at whatever job they are uh, doing, if it's an accountant, if it's a, a software engineer, who kind of says – well, I never knew that that thing I do really well that I want to be the best at could serve others. And let's have a conversation. And in the service of others, I might be able to take a little less comp. I might be able to you know, work at a place that's not going to you know, make me rich by stock options you know, turning into you know, millions of dollars. Sure. So it's really passion for craft. You know, I've heard Daniel Pink talk about the three things that motivate people at work, it's, uh, I believe it's autonomy, mastery, and purpose. So we have purpose. I mean, every single day, Charity Water gives over 2,000 people around the world access to clean water. And that's because of the generosity of our community. This year, we're on pace to give 2,700 people every day of the year access to clean water, seven days a week, over a million people. So purpose is kind of, that box is checked. But we want people who come in, uh, that care about autonomy and mastery and you'd be surprised how few do. Yeah. And you know why, what else I think that highlights, I mean, just for myself is people who say I'll do anything and they're just so passionate about the mission that sometimes can wane, you know, that passion after a while can go. But if you're 
really passionate about what you do your day in day out you know if you like what you do and then can add that to an organization that you agree with that is much more uh you know evergreen or long-standing i think I think that's right. And, and, and that's, a, that's a challenge for us. I mean, our work is thousands of miles away. And the water programs team here, you know, we've got 18 people. Their entire job is to fly around the world. They're in rural villages with clipboards. They're jumping in and out of Land Rovers. They're making sure the work is being done well, of high quality. It's being done on time. They're auditing. They're making sure the money's being spent. But there are so many roles here where you are not connected to the work. You're not right. walking around Ethiopia getting thanked by women who are drinking clean water for the first time. So you better be passionate about being an accountant or a software engineer. Mm. Because, you know, we were talking about our office, even though, you know, you're surrounded in this office by life-size photos of beneficiaries, and we try to bring that visual element and those stories home from the field, um, the passion can fade. Uh, It really was, I mean, as you say it, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But if we really think about it, that... That resonates because off the top of your head, I mean, people are going to go watch videos about charity water and you're going to and we're going to talk about the amazing work you're doing. But thinking if you're an accountant or a software developer or something, you're still in an office doing work on a project and making less money. So you better have something else that motivates you. I love that. Well, Scott, let's talk a little bit more about charity water. It is your I think it's your 10th year anniversary. Is that correct? 10th in September. You got it. Congratulations, man. That's really, really amazing. Did you ever think you'd get here? (laughs) (laughs) So I I get a version of that question often, and I think the answer surprises people. So 10 years in, we have uh, an amazing, generous community. Over a million people have joined the Charity Water Mission, contributing time, contributing money, fundraising. And we've raised over $210 million dollars. We've used that to fund 19,000 projects, which will help 6 million people, 6.1 million people. I'm surprised we haven't done so much more. I'm surprised mm-hmm. the 200 million is not 2 billion. And, you know, almost blame myself for not being smart enough to, you know, lead an organization that has helped more people quicker. And I think that's partly because I believe in the business model so much. I mean, we went out 10 years ago with a value proposition that said 100% of your money will go directly to help people get clean water. Every single penny, whether you give a dollar, whether you give, um, you know, whether you give a million dollars, every single penny goes directly to the projects. And water as an issue, we just thought was absolutely the most unarguable, inarguable common good, regardless of your religion, regardless of your geography, your race, your politics, everyone can stand for clean water. So we have these two powerful things. Um, now, we, we've grown a lot. It's, it's, a, it's been an amazing ride. But I think I, you know, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, or maybe a year in, I had to get a little bit in, <laughs> um, I would have thought we'd be, we'd be 5 or 10x by now. And wow. that's, that's where we're still trying to go. We're still trying to tell the story, to invite more people to join the community, and invite more people to add their voice, um, because we really believe in a day where no one drinks dirty water. The number has been coming down. The, uh, the problem is being solved. But I, you know, I don't want my kids to grow up in a world where some guy like me comes into their school and shows pictures of kids their age in Ethiopia or India or Cambodia drinking from 
you know, contaminated swamps, brown, viscous swamps and dying of diarrhea. Yeah, it makes so much sense. And so in the, the fact that you feel like you should have generated more, what what do you think is the biggest holdup? I mean, what's the hardest part? Is it the fundraising or is it the execution of bringing people clean water? At the moment, it's the fundraising. We have about a 3x delta of the money that we're currently raising and the money we know how to steward and spend well Hmm. helping people get clean water. So we could help about 3 million people this year get access to clean water. And we, you know, believe we can raise enough to help about a million get clean water. Tell me about your fundraising model, because it's it's interesting. I mean, you kind of touched on the 100 percent, but where then how is it funded in terms of salaries? And then, you know, also tell us about for those that are also interested how have you transformed this idea of donations, one of which being donate your birthday, which I'd love to hear more about? Yeah. Okay. Well, let's start with the premise. 46% of Americans don't trust charity. So about half of the people in this country do not trust charities. Some you can argue for good reason. Perhaps they were burned. Um, Perhaps, you know, they, uh, you know, spent a week watching Anderson Cooper chase bad charity CEOs around and and see the door slammed in his face. (laughs) People throw up their hands and say, that's why I don't give. So little of my money will actually go. So I realized that the biggest problem people had with giving, at least so they said, was around money. Where would the money go? How much would actually reach the people in need? So from day one, we said, what if we could solve that in such an emphatic way through a new business model and make this promise 100% of your money, Chris, whether it's a dollar or a million dollars, every single penny will go directly to the projects, uh, to direct project costs in, in the countries. Now, people said, well, that's the stupidest thing we've ever heard because how will you pay for salaries of employees? How will you have an office one day? How would you even buy a a coach plane ticket to go and develop the water programs. I wasn't sure at the time because I was living on a closet floor uh, (laughs) off of the kindness of strangers and my ex nightclub uh, uh, partner. But I I opened up two bank accounts and I believe that if we could figure this out, it would, it would restore people's faith in giving. And, you know, we would get a bunch of people who were disenchanted to take another look and hopefully come back to the table of generosity. So began, you know, talking about the overhead needs to other people and uh, this idea for a program called The Well, a small group of people who would back the staff, the employees, the office costs so that the general public, the distrustful general public would have this pure play um, began to develop. And, And effectively, you're starting two businesses at the same time from scratch. It was incredibly difficult. Um, I'm talking to you. Hey, Chris, are you disenchanted or not? If you are, you're giving to the water side. If I think that you know you could be a builder, I might be talking to you about um, helping us get that next water program officer hired. So that was the model. Two bank accounts audited separately by KPMG. And we took the integrity of the 100% model so far that we've even paid back credit card donations. So if you were to give $1,000 on your Amex, we don't get 1000 We would get 970 And we would separately make up the 3% and send the entire $1,000 to the field. And then we track it. And wow. we prove these projects on Google Earth and Google Maps, um, closing the loop. We want you to see where your money has actually gone and what it's accomplished. Yeah, and actually, while we're on that subject, tell us about – because I remember – 
again, this is years ago, five, six years ago, uh, watching you speak and being really fascinated about how you can track where your money goes, I think down to the well, if I recall. Uh, how do you do that? Well, again, it, it, it's actually kind of easy because money is not fungible here. You know, all of the public donations go into the bank account that is restricted, and we can only use that to fund these water projects of many different kinds in different countries. And then we just track those dollars out the door. So, you know, from day one, we said we're going to put every single uh, water point we ever fund on Google Earth and Google Maps. So, you know, we believe that you should be able to buy a GPS device and go visit all of our projects. And we just, we believe radical transparency was the way to go. So online, you mentioned the birthday. I mean, that was one of the amazing things uh, that we just stumbled into. We said, look, a lot of people can't give, but what if they could give up uh, something around their birthday? What if they could give up their birthday gifts? What if they could sacrifice a party and almost reclaim the birthday as this generous moment. What if we could make our birthdays about others and not about us? And the premise was we get so much crap for our birthdays that we don't really need. Sometimes we don't even want, whether it's a belt, a tie, a handbag, <laughs> socks, you know, a gift card to, to Crate and Barrel. You know, what if we could make our birthdays about others and help people get their most basic needs met? I came up with this crazy idea to ask for the age in dollars. So I, I led with my 32nd birthday and I asked everybody I knew, would you please donate $32 for my 32nd birthday? And it worked. And then a seven-year-old kid in Texas went out knocking on doors asking for $7 donations. And that worked. And an 89-year-old went out asking for $89 donations for her 89th birthday. And that worked. And this movement really began to build of thousands and thousands of people saying, I'll give up a birthday for clean water. And then we built this really cool online tracking tool called Dollars to Projects, where if a six-year-old gave up her birthday, she could see where $61 went. And she could see the photos and the GPS. She could see how much that project costs and all of the other people that she shared uh, that, that cost of the project with. So... You know, it was just a cool experience. And then her donors or her friends and families could see where that money went. So whether someone was able to raise you know, $66 or $66,000, um, all of the money was tracked. It really is. Uh, that's something that stuck with me for a while. You guys do some incredibly innovative things, especially for a nonprofit, which is not known to be, you know, that industry not necessarily known to be innovative. One of the things I heard about was this partnership you're doing with Google to provide sensors that really... I think that it relays information to you on if the well is working or not. Could you tell us about that project? Yeah. So with all these thousands of projects out there, we know where they all are. We've made all that information public. And we, we, uh, we and our partners, so Charity Water works through uh, local partners in these different countries. So imagine 500 people woke up in Ethiopia today, all Ethiopians, a mix of hydrologists, technicians, drivers, uh, well diggers, um, e even accountants, uh, people working in procurement. They woke up today and they began working on charity water projects. So we, it's, it's a partnership model. We employ about 1,600 locals around the world uh, who are working on these projects every single day. And we have a team of 78 people here in New York City um, and really a huge community of everyday people like your listeners that are making this all possible. So we, we wanted to kind of take transparency a step farther and – 
we, we're, our partners are following best practices. So when they go into a community, they're working with the community. They're having discussions. Where does the water point belong? What land uh, is it going to be on? Who's sharing the ownership of that land? Sometimes it'll be donated back to the community, uh, to the corpus. Um, and then they'll set up a water committee. And it's typically half women, half men, three men, three women. They'll train the local water committee on how to make um, preventative maintenance repairs on the well, if it's a well. And they'll impose kind of a system of tariffs where everybody who's using the water will pay a little bit, sometimes only a dollar a month, into the maintenance fund. So that if there's a problem, the community has the resources, they have the money, they have the know-how to go and fix their own projects. Been doing that for, for years. What we wanted to know is, is that really working? Hmm. And, you know, we know that the well's built. When we drive off, people are drinking clean water. But what about three or four or five or six years later? And we wondered if we could uh, apply technology to help solve that problem. So we went to Google a few years ago and said, Google, we have this crazy idea. Um, What if we could develop a sensor that would work in these rural environments in 120 degree heat? Uh, We'd love to make this thing for a hundred bucks, protecting a $10,000 asset of a well. And, you know, we'd like thousands of them. So Google actually awarded us a $5 million grant, which was the largest grant um, they had awarded at that time to a nonprofit. And we spent the next three years working with 20 different labs trying to develop a sensor that would work in this very specific environment. Happy to say we have a thousand of them currently installed in Ethiopia uh, in rural areas and about 700 are giving us daily data. And it is the most amazing thing to sit in New York and see a well that I was at a couple days ago in remote part of Ethiopia and see how much water they used yesterday and know that these projects are functioning. At the same time, we have been training mechanics in these countries to go out who could act on the major repairs that could be necessary, repairs that might, be beyond, might be beyond the uh, aptitude of that local water community to repair. So we now have a system of, you know, almost imagine a geek squad hmm. who could respond to failed sensor data. Um, it's almost like the Maytag repairman. If my you know, dishwasher was, was just sending out a sense, everything's okay, everything's okay, everything's okay for five years. And then one day it breaks and the Maytag service center says, hey, the Harrison's dishwasher broke. Um, it makes a service call to go and bring that online if I haven't fixed it myself within a couple of days. So that's the system that we're building. It's brand new. Uh, it's not been easy. A lot of challenges with the sensors, challenges with cell phone coverage, um, you know, challenges just even installing some of these. But we, we're, we're scaling up 4,000 of these at the moment. Wow. And it'll, it'll be the largest rural data set ever compiled in, in the history of the world. And you know, one day maybe we'll have those on all of our appliances, so we don't have to make calls. Maybe I'll have one on my, on my, you know, uh, internet provider box. So when it screws up, they'll actually call me. <laughs> I mean, it might not be as important as I love it the water, but I like what you're building back home too. Well, Scott, again, thank you so much for your time. For our listeners, where can they go? What can they do? Tell us how to sure. understand Charity Water 
and perhaps give? Sure. I'll tell you the most pressing need right now as we approach 10 years is um, we're, we're launching a new subscription product. So we've had about a million givers, many of them one-time givers. And we're launching a new product where people can give $30 a month and get one person clean water every single month. Um, it's important to us to try to build a base of people who will be with us over the long term. Um, so rather than someone you know, dropping a couple hundred dollars on the website, we would actually prefer they're willing to join us monthly. And we've never really had this before. Um, it's brand new. So people just go to charitywater.org, learn more about the story, watch some of the videos. Uh, you'd learn how to give monthly there. And then also the birthday idea. It's something every single person can do. I've given up six birthdays. Uh, and you could go to charitywater.org slash birthdays and you could pledge yours. So even if it's a year from now, you just enter in your email, your date of birth and a month before your birthday, we send you the very simple instructions. Cool thing here, Chris, is the average person raises a thousand dollars from 15 friends and family. And I bet there's people listening, you know, they can't write a thousand dollar check, but just simply donating a birthday, people love this. And then they get to see exactly where the money goes and, and see that impact. So, yeah, two ways. Go to charitywater.org um, or if you're interested in pledging your birthday, charitywater.org slash birthdays. Well, again, Scott, thank you for your work. Thank you for the, the time to be on the show. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. All right. Have a great day. Take care, man. All right. Bye-bye. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Scott Harrison. If you're interested in finding out more about Charity Water, please head over to donate.charitywater.org to read up more on Charity Water and to donate if you see fit. Thanks again for checking out the show. If you're looking for an easy way to support Smart People Podcast, please head over to iTunes or Stitcher and leave a rating and review and comment over there. It really does help out the show, so thank you very much for those of you that are going to do so or have done so in the past. If you're looking for other ways to support the show, please don't forget about the Amazon link over at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. Any purchase you make through Amazon going through our link will send a nice little kickback to us at no cost to you. If you'd like to reach out to the show, please shoot us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or send us a message on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. As always, we're continuing to amass a lot of great interviews, so make sure you stay tuned to all things Smart People Podcast by heading over to smartpeoplepodcast.com, and we will see you all next week. <laughs>